and welcome to Proud to Be, the show that highlights veterans, military personnel, and family members published in Proud to Be, writing by American Warriors, a creative writing anthology that preserves and shares our nation's military experience through poetry, fiction, essay, interviews, and photography. I'm your host, Lisa Carrico, and our guest for this episode is Bill Glose, an American journalist, poet, and fiction writer. He was commissioned as an army officer and paratrooper assigned to the 82nd Airborne and served as combat platoon leader in the Gulf War. Bill has been published in eight of the nine volumes, and today we will hear some of his thoughts and stories behind his PTB contributions. Bill, welcome to the show. Oh, I, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, Proud to Be has always been one of my favorite journals out there, and I always tell other veterans that this is something you should be submitting to, this is something you should be reading. So I, I'm thrilled to be part of this podcast. Well, thank you for helping spread the word uh, about PTB and being uh, a part of it. So thank you. Well, let's dive right in. Uh, what is your military background and how did you find yourself jumping out of planes? <laughs> uh, so I, I grew up in a military family, actually. Uh, I was born in California. My, my father was an Air Force pilot. And so I grew up on Air Force bases overseas in Japan and Okinawa and England. Uh, and it wasn't until my dad came back to the States and was assigned to uh, Langley that we finally had a place we called home. You know, that was the last place he hung his hat. And so ever since Virginia uh, has been what I've considered home, even when I've moved away. Uh, so he was an Air Force pilot. And on those bases overseas, our, our home was always next to the runway, you know, so I didn't have far to go to get to the plane. And uh, so I'd, I'd race my bike along the side of the uh, runway as his plane would take off and uh, just always wanted to be a pilot. Uh, when I went off to college at Virginia Tech, I joined the Corps of Cadets and I was in the Air Force ROTC for my first two years because I wanted to be a pilot. Unfortunately for me, you had to have perfect eyesight and they didn't have the eye surgery that they've got now. So uh, I, I was told that instead of flying a plane, they were going to assign me to a missile silo somewhere out in Idaho or something. And uh, so I went next door to the Army ROTC offices. I figured if I couldn't fly the planes, I would jump out of them and uh, became a paratrooper. Uh, my dad always needles me whenever the subject comes up. He says, I can't see why anyone would jump out of a perfectly good airplane. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bill, I do believe you are the first paratrooper that I have met. Um, I do have a lot of questions, but I will try to keep them to a minimum. So it sounds like you had never jumped out of a plane before deciding to become a paratrooper. No, no. Uh, you know, it's it's one of those things, you know, I, I like to do a lot of the adrenaline junkie things when I was young. So uh, it was something I always thought I would enjoy. 
Um, but no, I hadn't experienced that before, not until I, I went to jump school. Uh, when you go to jump school, you do five jumps from a plane and you get your wings pinned on after that. And then you're sent off and uh, everybody, when you get your unit, they call you a five jump chump. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not until you get the actual jumps with the unit that you start uh, really learning how uh, the uh, paratroopers are used in combat. You know, in, in jump school, we jumped from 1,250 feet and we had no packs. You know, we just had our parachute and our reserve. And then you get to the unit and you're loaded down with like, I don't know, a 50, 60, 70 pound rucksack that you have on your lap because your parachute is on your back and you've got your reserves on your stomach and your weapon is in a carrier on your side and then you get helmet. So you're just loaded down and you can barely move. You're waddling into the plane and every single mass tactical jump I went on, and a, and a mass tactical means that an entire battalion is jumping at a time, so about 700 people. And for every one of those jumps, at least one person would break a leg. So it, it is a dangerous uh, activity because uh, the parachuting most people think of, they think of a football game when someone dives in with the ball and tiptoes off at the 50-yard line and, and it just looks so graceful as they come down on that silk wing. Well, military parachuting, they want, they drop you low. Uh, in, in the 82nd, our training jumps, we jumped at 800 feet. And in combat, you jumped at 500 feet. Uh, so the purpose is to get you down to the ground as fast as possible. So you're a target for as little time as possible. So... When, when you hit the ground, you're hitting at 18 to 22 feet per second. And if you don't do the proper motions, you break a leg. When, when you land, you're supposed to kind of slip into the wind and curl your body like a banana so that you spread the impact out all across your body instead of absorbing it all in your legs. And uh, so it, I, had, I had 60 jumps uh, while I was in the 82nd and I only got one injury. Uh, I got a concussion one time when I, uh, when my landing spot was in a, it was in a little, uh, valley. <laughs> so I came on the downside of, of the hill and, uh, my, my head was like the fulcrum, like the clapper and a bell. And I just, I came back to the rally point I had dirt all over my face and <laughs> I was a mess I didn't know which way was up uh, but uh, yeah I, I, I loved the jumping experience um, and anybody who's ever considered going out on one of those tandem jumps just to see what it's like I, I highly recommend it uh, you know they're, they're lots of fun. I've always wanted to jump out of a plane, but I struggled jumping off of a diving board from like 12 <laughs> feet. So <laughs> I know sometimes like if I jump off something high, I definitely get that like reservation pause, maybe a little extra encouragement. I know that you can't really, you couldn't really have that while um, serving. <laughs> yeah. Well, 
Well, if, if you froze in the door, you were likely to get a sergeant's boot in your butt to <laughs> keep you going because, yeah, because everybody had to uh, get out of that, get out of that plane. And uh, there was a, a person going out the door every second. So there were, there were two doors, you know, uh, one on each side of the plane. So it was every half second, another jumper would be going into the air, you know, uh, as, as they alternated. But uh, yeah, so you couldn't, you couldn't hold up progress. If you froze, you were, and you were anywhere near the door, you were going out anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, I'd probably get the boot in the butt then. <laughs> <laughs> so you served in the 82nd Airborne and um, served in the Gulf War. And I believe I read that the 82nd Airborne Division um, were among the first American soldiers sent to the Persian Gulf in response to Iraq's invasion of Kuwait, uh, August 2nd, 1990. If you don't mind telling our audience, uh, what were some of the major duties of the 82nd? Normally, our purpose is the seizure of enemy terrain by air. You know, so we, we jump in, seize uh, an airhead, and then they bring, then they send planes in with heavier, uh, you know, with tanks and things like that, and start to spread out. But we're the ones who go in first and seize it. Uh, so that's our our general purpose. It was very different in the Gulf War uh, because you know we didn't we didn't jump in. We went into Saudi Arabia. We were the first troops sent over there. Uh, and anyone who remembers that that time, there was this headline that, that still stands out to me today. They called us speed bumps uh, because Saddam Hussein had this great uh, army of tanks that had been fighting for 10 years with Iran. And, you know, they took over Kuwait and they were poised to go into Saudi Arabia. And so we set up a defensive position to prevent that. But had he rolled in, he would have gone straight through us. There's only so much light troops can do when tanks come at them. Uh, you know, we would have done some damage, but you know, we wouldn't have stopped him, and it would have been would have been pretty horrible for us. So, uh, but he did flinch, and then it then uh, it built up with the coalition. We brought in. Uh, a lot of our troops and then uh, other forces. We were right next to the uh, French 7th Light and uh, you know, they were you know, right on our flank as we did the actual land invasion of Iraq. And uh, you know, it was that, that big hammer and anvil that everybody sees on the screen. We were part of the big left hook. So we we drove in instead of instead of jumping in. We drove in on the backs of trucks. Uh, then we offloaded when we got near the bunker complexes, and then you know we cleared those on foot. Something that stands out vividly to me. You know we didn't have cell phones in those day in that day, and uh, communication was <laughs> very interrupted. And when we were uh, about 50 miles inside Iraq, and we were just at a dead stop on the side of the road. Uh, someone tuned in to the BBC 
and we heard on this broadcast, they were saying that there were reports that an airborne unit had jumped into Baghdad and was wiped out. Wow. And, and we were the only airborne unit there. You know, we were the only paratroopers. So, you know, there was all this confusion and either it was disinformation being put out or it was just the confusion of war. But I was thinking, you know, this is what, you know, all of us kids, our, our parents are hearing back in the States and they're thinking we're dead, you know, and there's nothing we can do to let them know that right now we're sitting on the side of the road, <laughs> just listening to the radio. So, yes, yeah, so there was a lot of confusion there. And, um, and once, once we actually got out there, um, a lot of the Iraqi soldiers that we had been trained for months to hate, we learned these were, you know, they were guys just like us, but uh, they were mostly conscripts. They were shopkeepers. They were businessmen. They were people who were forced into service to just kind of fill those positions. And they were surrendering by the thousands. Wow. Uh, you know, so that was, became very difficult. That was something we were unprepared for. You know, we were trained in how to fight and kill. And now we had all these, you know, uh, people who had, you know, no desire to fight coming, you know, toward us and trying to surrender. And, how to separate, you know, combatants from, you know, the peaceful populace. And it was just a, a very eye-opening uh, experience. Uh, and, and I will say a lot of the, um, a lot of the soldiers that did surrender that, you know, we took in, they were asking us to arm them again. They wanted to fight with us against Saddam. Yeah, that's really powerful. Um, and those aren't really some of the stories you hear, right? When you're the civilian back home listening. I got goosebumps when you were talking about the BBC report. Thanks for sharing uh, your insight and your, your firsthand experience there on the ground uh, in Iraq. Um, during your military career, uh, you earned several badges. Would you tell us more about your badges and um, perhaps a story about your most memorable jump, if there's one outside of getting a concussion? <laughs> okay, certainly. So the badge that means a lot to me is the Ranger tab. Going through Ranger school is one of the most arduous experiences anyone can go through. Uh, it's nine weeks of hell. Uh, you know, when you go in there, you're in the fittest shape of your life. And when you come out, you're a walking skeleton. Uh, you know, I think, so in the nine weeks I was there, I lost 45 pounds. And I was already slim and in, in great shape at, at that time. Uh, you barely get any sleep. You you know, they, they try to put you under the most strain and stress possible so they can test out how you will act under those situations. That, you know, it's the closest they can come to, you know, simulating the, uh, how combat wears on you 
and how you still have to be able to think and process and act and lead. So that was a real tough badge um, to earn. I, I mentioned the wings you get as a five jump chum. <laughs> well, uh, going up from there, after you become what's called a jump master, which is the paratrooper who controls all the actions of a stick inside the plane. Uh, so when you become a jump master and you get 35 jumps, you're then what's called a senior paratrooper. And then going up from that, once you get to 65 jumps, you become a master paratrooper. And you have this, so when you're a senior, you have a star over your wings. And when you're a master, you have a wreath around the star. And I was chasing that wreath at the end, but <laughs> I just couldn't quite get there. I was five jumps short. <laughs> oh, what a bummer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as for a memorable jump, this one time, we were helping out for this competition. At this time, we were jumping from helicopters. So this was the old army helicopters that you see in all the movies. It was the, the UH-1H Huey. And uh, we're just sitting in the sides of the, of the door with our feet hanging out. And uh, it was a competition for jump masters to see how close they could get their stick to an X in the middle of the drop zone. Well, <laughs> our, our jump master didn't know what he was doing too much. He hadn't you know, given instructions to a pilot in a, in a helicopter before. And we found ourselves way out over the woods <laughs> instead of over the drop zone. And instead of telling the pilot to go around and you know, line back up, he told us to go. And so you know, we jumped out over deep over the woods and there's something you can do called pulling a slip if you grab the risers and pull them down it tilts your chute a little bit your canopy and and it, it can direct you uh in in one direction not not it's not great steering but you've got a little bit of control and so I, I grabbed my risers and pulled down. I just kept pulling and pulling until I was bringing the silk down to my chest and practically collapsing one side of it. And my chute was, I was screaming in one direction, going for that drop zone. And I got caught by the last tree. So, so most of that stick was deep in the woods. But uh, me and one other guy, we made it to the last tree. And a tree landing were, you know, we're, we've heard horror stories about it because, you know, you, you can get beaten up by the branches, you can get one puncture a lung or something. And, and so you're supposed to cover up as you go through the branches to protect yourself. And so I did that, prepared for the worst. My canopy caught on the branches. And when I, when I pulled my hands away from my face, I, I was dangling about a foot over the ground and so I popped my canopy releases and it was the lightest landing I ever had. <laughs> <laughs> well, good work with all the steering. That sounds like a really <laughs> scary and stressful situation. So. Oh yeah. <laughs> I do have another question with the Ranger badge. Do you sign up for that? Is that voluntary? Oh yes. It's okay. uh, 
same, same thing with uh, being a paratrooper. So, you know, you, uh, every one of the 82nd, they say you volunteered twice. You know, once you, you volunteered to join the army and then you volunteered to become a paratrooper. And uh, so any of the uh, uh, extra hazardous things, you have to volunteer for them. And uh, ranger school, that's uh, another one of those. Um, but, uh, and, and it takes place in four different places in the country. So you start out in Fort Benning, you go through the Benning phase, and then you go down to Florida for the swamp phase, you go to Georgia for the mountains phase, and then you go out to the desert in Utah for the desert phase. And you, you, know, you get extremes in each of those environments. I like all of those areas for hiking. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll go with the more passive uh, version <laughs> of visiting the desert and the mountains. <laughs> yeah. I definitely feel like you gained a lot of interesting skills uh, in that process and, and being a paratrooper. Yeah. Now, if I could just apply any of those skills to <laughs> civilian life. <laughs> um, so when did you start writing about your combat experiences? Uh, what inspired you to write about these experiences and what did you gain from writing them down? Uh, well, you know, so, so I mentioned my, so my dad was a Vietnam veteran and uh, he never spoke about his war. He never, you know, said anything about it. And so many vets do not. They keep it all, you know, buried inside. And so uh, I followed my dad's example, and I, you know, didn't say anything. And uh, you know, I would have my explosive moments. But uh, about nearly ten years after. I started uh, at the encouragement of some poet friends of mine. I started writing some of my experiences down and I would, you know, stick them in a drawer and not share them with anyone and revisit them and work on them. And, and it was really tough uh, to explore some of those things. And then my friends encouraged me to go to an open mic and actually share them you know, with a crowd. And so that was, you know, the, the next scary step because, you know, these, these people that knew me and thought one thing of me, you know, what would they then think of me if they knew, you know, what I, what I'd seen and what I did? Uh, if, you know, they, if I opened up my heart and, and showed some of the darker, things that were in there and so it was real scary but it was i i was so relieved by the outpouring of support at that first open mic and i uh i began to submit the the poems and you know started gathering some publication credits and uh now you know uh, eventually you know, I have uh, two books of war poetry. I've, I have five books of poetry total, but two of them are war specific. Uh, <laughs> there's a, a picture of me uh, uh, from my younger, slimmer soldier days on the cover of uh, Half a Man. 
And then uh, the other book, which just came out last year, uh, Postscript to War, uh, has more up-to-date uh, war poetry in there. A lot of it has to do with the current situation with um, you know the soldiers that have deployed to war you know seven eight nine times just you know we demand so much of them and uh, and two of the poems in that collection were published in proud to be I'm proud to say <laughs> let's explore uh two of these poems that um, are in Postscript to War. Both of them are poetry, prize-winning poems, questions raised by Black Scorpions, and What the Bomb Wants, um, which also, the book itself also won a Main Street RAG Poetry Book Award. So congrats on that. Um, let's start with Raised by Black Scorpions featured in Proud to be Five. Where they came from, no one knew. These segmented, scabrous creatures we had to shake from our boots. So foreign-seeming to us foreigners who thought we were anything but. Who was first to snap them in Tupperware? I can't recall. Only the way each backed away with pincers raised, tail curled into a venom-spiked question mark. What we did was place two of them in circles inscribed by ammo crates and watched them fight. Which would live and which would die? We bet on them instead of looking at ourselves, letters we'd written just in case, burning like coals in our pockets. When orders sent us scuttling into Iraq, we set them free and oiled our weapons moving parts. Each man swimming in an ocean of questions he wanted to ask. Leaders pointed out destinations on maps inscribed with grease marker circles. The only answer we would ever get. So thank you for sharing uh, your poem. It's very vivid. When I read it, I feel like I'm watching those two scorpions. Uh, the poem conjures up important questions raised by war, including the matter of life and death. Uh, what do you hope people get from reading this poem? The main thing I was exploring there was, you know, the survival mechanism we had of deflecting. Um, you know, we, we focused on other things and even when it came time, uh, to be sent into battle, we focused on the small tasks of oiling our weapons of, of the, you know, the small preparations, uh, you know, it, each of us, you know, wrote those letters to our mothers, to our girlfriends, to our wives, to whoever, uh, you know, and put them in our pockets or, you know, swap them uh, with our buddies. And, you know, in those letters, that's where we confess those dark fears. But among, among your buddies, you, you don't want to show that 
that you're human. <laughs> you want yeah. to show that you are just as hard as you imagine all of them are. And inside each of them are thinking the same thing. So I kind of wanted to explore that and just, you know, get a, get a sense of the confusion that uh, we felt there and, and how we deflected some of our fears toward other macho things. <laughs> I can imagine, you know, there's a comfort in just trying to do the daily duties, not thinking about going to combat and what that outcome may be and knowing that you're holding all of these feelings in and probably knowing that you can look at your fellow soldier and know that they're having these same intense feelings. So uh, it's such a powerful poem. And um, I don't know if I understood it fully until you really kind of explained it. So thank you. Um, let's move on to the next poem. Would you mind reading the first stanza from What the Bomb Wants? Certainly. The bomb never dreams of vacations in Maui or climbing ancient volcanoes to peer into pools of lava. Why beauty exists in one eruption and not another could exasperate the bomb, but doesn't. The bomb is busy counting seconds till its enunciation to an unsuspecting crowd. Thank you, Bill. Uh, so the next stanza starts off, spend time in the company of bombs. You can't help thinking like one yourself. Um, how did you arrive at writing this poem and what does this poem mean to you? The, the thing that I was driving at with this one was kind of a comparison of the bombs that we had to deal with while uh, we were over there and the bombs that we became ourselves. You know, the explosive nature of soldiers with PTSD returning home from war. Uh, you know, the current soldiers, you know, every trip outside the wire, you know, there can be an IED on the roadside. Uh, and, you know, there's just this constant state of stress. Uh, we didn't have the IEDs when I was over there. Uh, what we had were the cluster bombs that we had dropped ourselves. Uh, so the cluster bombs blanketed uh, large areas and they'd get covered by sand and just marching along. You know, we could trip one of our own bombs. And... Uh, you know, some of some there were several instances that happened, you know, uh, very near me. So anyway, that's that's what I was getting at with what what the bomb wants is that just that comparison of the worst fear that we had and then becoming that same object that we fear ourselves. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Thank you. Bill, after you got out of the army, you spent several years working in factories across the country, um, where after a few years, you decided to walk away from the production career to become a full-time freelance writer. Uh, did you have any formal training in writing, um, or did you just realize you this was something natural for you, uh, and where has your journey as a writer taken you thus far? 
Yeah, so I, I had no formal training to begin with. My degree in college was in engineering, although when I got in the Army, the only engineering I did was digging foxholes. <laughs> um, and, but I, I always wrote stories. Uh, I, I've got some stories that I wrote back from when I was five years old. Uh, and, you know, it's something I've always loved. I've always done. I've always turned to it as a way to explore the world. Uh, when I was working in the factories, uh, they were some long, hard days. You know, that was the, the factories that were, they were the meat and potatoes of my life. You know, they were what I, what I needed to put food on my table and roof over my head. But then I'd come home after those long days and I would write and that would be my dessert. <laughs> um, yeah, I just, uh, I, I love that. And when I was at my second factory, I found myself coming home and, and just being worn down from the day and then the joy I would feel from writing. And I would, you know, so that's what convinced me. I, I said, you know, this is what I love to do. Uh, and in America, you know, <laughs> if you drive toward your passion, you know, you can find a way to achieve that. And so I walked away from the production world and dove into the writing world. Uh, you know, the, the early days uh, were pretty tough as I was trying to, you know, scratch out a living as a freelance writer. Uh, then I started landing some regular gigs and, you know, it was that, that, you know, school of hard knocks, you know, learning, learning by doing, uh, you know, I attended writers conferences. I read up as much as I could, but mostly I, I learned by doing. And, you know, I've written uh, hundreds of articles over the years. I've, uh, you know, been a, a journalist now for over 20 years. And um, yeah, it's just been, it's been a, a wonderful experience. Uh, you know, I, I've gotten to meet some heroes of mine. Best of all, I've gotten to sit down with people and have them share the important things of their lives with me and get that little peek into someone else's heart. And I, I've found that to be a, a real joy. I love that you are sharing um, your stories with us and that you also find so much joy uh, in hearing other people's stories. I think that's really neat. So uh, while I was kind of researching some of your books and poetry, uh, I saw that you uh, did a poetry, maybe it was a blog um, and poetry based around uh, walking across the state of Virginia. Um, how did you decide to walk several thousand miles across the state? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, that, that came about. There, there was this uh, President's Head Park near uh, me that I would see a glimpse of it as I would drive by. And they had these... Uh, I don't know if there were about 15 foot statues of all the presidents. They would bust the presidents and information on them. And it's one of those things I said, oh, I can go to that anytime. And then one day the president's park moved. 
And I started thinking about all those things I said, you know, as all of us do, all the things that are close to us, we take for granted and we say, well, I can do that anytime. And so you just put it off and put it off and then, you know, someday never comes. And so when the president's head part uh, moved and, you know, and I lost my opportunity with that, I said, you know, I, I need to get out there and grab these opportunities and actually explore the state that I've called my home for so long. And so I, I devised this plan to uh, walk not straight across the state. I wanted to zigzag and explore every region of the state so that I could get a, a feel for the flavor. And I interviewed people and I wrote articles along the way. And I, and as you said, I did, I wrote a book of poetry, uh, Virginia Walkabout that, that came out of that. Uh, but uh, it was the experience of a lifetime. And uh, yeah, so it ended up being a little over 1500 miles. So enough to go halfway across the country. <laughs> and uh, I crossed every one of the state borders uh, and uh, along the way. So I visited a bison farm. I flew in a World War II airplane. I jumped off a cliff into a water-filled quarry. Uh, I went to a nudist colony. Yeah, the, the, the whole the thing that I told myself is I have to say yes to any experience I come across. Uh, I have to, you know, participate uh, however I can. And so it, it did, it, it not only was the experience of a lifetime, it changed my life because I, you know, I view the world differently and I view opportunity differently. I, I say yes to pretty much anything that happens. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. I love it. I love the yes attitude. Um, I, I definitely feel like that opens you up to a whole new world of experiences. Um, so uh, what is in store for the future? Well, the big thing uh, for my future is that I have a book coming out next year, uh, All the Ruined Men. It is a collection of short fiction. And this also is a military uh, story. So it tells the story of a squad of soldiers who have deployed numerous times to Iraq and Afghanistan and now are transitioning into civilian life and experiencing all kinds of problems. And, you know, I, I wanted to show in this book that, you know, when people think of soldiers, they so often think of them being little cookie cutter images. They think this is what a soldier is, but every soldier is unique, just like every person is unique. And so when they come back, they each have their own problems. And that's what I wanted to show the, the diversity of a single squad and, you know, how the damage that happens in war, you can carry back with you and it can manifest in many different ways. So that's, that's something I've been working on it for a long, long time. And I'm so delighted to, it, it's being published by St. Martin's and it's due to come out uh, May of next year and uh, to a bookstore near you. <laughs> uh, and one of the stories in that collection 
was also published in Proud to Be, uh, the story, what, um, what Won't Stay Buried. And that, that one, in addition to it incorporating some of my military experiences, it also incorporates the factory experience. Um, I, I worked for three and a half years at a bag factory in Chicago, and the protagonist in this story works in a bag factory in Chicago after having served in the 82nd Airborne. So you know, there's a lot I pull from my life, including the inciting incident, which is when someone gets in a very, uh, in a tragic accident with one of the machines, you know, that also happened, uh, not to me, but I was, uh, it happened to someone on my shift and I, I bandaged that person and, and took her to the hospital in the back of my car. And all of that happens to this person. But from there, everything kind of goes a different way. So, you know, I use my own as a basis, my own life as a basis. And then uh, the story takes off and the characters have their own lives and troubles. Bill, what do you hope that others gain from reading your proud to be contributions and your your other military related writings? Uh, when, when it comes to military writings, a, a question I've heard a lot from people who either have a loved one in the mil- in the military or a loved one who's a veteran, especially if they have a loved one who's been wounded or traumatized in some way. Uh, the question I hear all the time is, you know, will it be hurtful to read something like this, to hear something like this, or to write something like this? And you know, the answer I always give is the same. You know, there's nothing I can think of, no trauma I can imagine that we push down inside ourselves that ever gets better from ignoring it. And yes, you know, the writing can be a painful exploration. You know, I I mentioned those early days uh, of writing, how tough those were and how scared I was to share my work with others. But, you know, it got better, it got easier, and it was so cathartic to to let out what scared me so much and to see that other people didn't see me as a monster. You know, the writing itself is uh, such a relief and, you know, for other people to read it and experience it, you know, we can all, you know, whenever we read a story that captivates us, we all imagine ourselves in that position and what would we do? And so I think that's, you know, a a healthy thing, you know, for someone who hasn't experienced uh, anything like this to kind of explore those things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, I hope um, as you continue um, writing and sharing your works that helps inspire others to Um, maybe put some of their thoughts down on paper and explore some of the feelings that come up for them. Uh, Before concluding, where can our listeners go to learn more about you, your writing, and purchase your books? Well, the best place is just to go straight to my website, which is my name, 
BillGlose.com. And that's got all the information there. Um, you know, so if someone wants to get a signed book from me, they can do that for me. Um, thank you for your time and for sharing your creativity and your gravity defying stories today. If you would like to read Bill's PTB pieces, you can purchase volumes one through nine of Proud to Be at mohumanities.org backslash veterans. This podcast is brought to you by the Missouri Humanities. I am Lisa Carrico, and we hope you will tune in for future episodes of Proud to Be as we interview PTB contributors to discover the stories behind their PTB contributions.